Good evening, everyone. Tonight we continue our study in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. Before we start, though, I did want to touch for a few minutes on the importance of reading Scripture, not only in a corporate setting like the church, but also personally. Now, this may not seem like it's directly related to the text, but these are foundational truths for us. Also, as the theme in Philippians is encouragement and how to live the life we're called to live, I'm going to talk a little bit in depth on that later. When we read God's word in church or by ourselves, it is as if God himself is speaking with us. So if you've ever wished that God would speak to you, all we have to do is open up God's word and read it, and we can know that he has. Of course, someone has to speak or teach on God's word also, so that when we expound on it, it is us speaking, and that's where error can come in. Now, I would say that our pastors have been divinely appointed to preach God's word as heralds of God's kingdom, so they clearly have a God-given authority that we as lay Christians don't necessarily have when we teach. Thankfully, Green Tree places a big emphasis on the reading of Scripture, but there are some churches that do not. That's hard to believe. In my spare time, I like to watch a series of shows on YouTube that has a panel of famous theologians and pastors, and they take questions from the audience. You might recognize these names, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, Uh, Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Horton are just a few of them. One topic one night was on that, the reading of God's Word in church, and MacArthur retold a story of a visiting pastor, I think he was from another country, who traveled to many churches in the United States. And when he came to MacArthur's church, he told him that it was the first time that he had heard God's Word read aloud in church. That's pretty amazing. But that's part of the casualness of the 21st century church where the words of life can be omitted from the service. And if that was true a number of years ago, how much more so today? Because God's word is living and active, along with the spirit first bringing regeneration, it is the instrument God uses to save people. Most of us know Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. Not the word of men, the word of Christ. Pastor MacArthur told another related story with a bit of humor in it of another man who came to his church whose life was an absolute mess. After the service, this man told MacArthur that when he read God's word from the pulpit, I think it was from the Psalms, his life was immediately changed. Simply by the reading of God's word, he felt conviction of sin and saw Jesus as his only hope, and in that moment realized he needed to give his life to Jesus. The humorous part of the story was when the man said to MacArthur, that after he had spoken God's word, he went on for 30 or 40 minutes talking about something that this man had no idea what it was. That was the sermon. (laughs) The point is, it was the word of God from the Bible that changed him, and that is why God's word needs to be read in church. But we also need to engage and cultivate a studious approach to it. For Jesus tells us in John 6, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Do we believe that? That only Jesus has the words of eternal life? If we don't, and we think we can find the answer somewhere else, then we are lost and without hope. If we do believe that, then God's word must take a high priority in our lives. This is why our commitment to Jesus as Lord, to his church as the stage that he uses to bring his glory into the nations, and which the Apostle Paul calls the pillar of truth, our serious attention, study, and reading of his word, prayer, 
seriousness of the sacraments and regular fellowship with believers are paramount and of immense importance. We live in a time of easy Christianity. The Bible says nothing of that. God makes very specific demands on his children and places great responsibility on how we are to live and how we are not to live. And God is very serious about his word, so we need to be so also. This is why having a right understanding of what true saving faith is and how we are to live our lives is so important. In saying all this about God's word, this is one reason why we read the text on Sunday or when we teach, because it alone has supernatural power. So if we ever think that's what being, what's being read is kind of long, we need to remember that as God himself speaking to us and give it the reverence that is due. With that in mind, I will read our text tonight. It's not too long. Now, Kyle had four verses last week. It's not four verses, but it includes not only some of the most popular texts in the Bible, but also maybe some of the most difficult or perhaps most discussed verses because of their vagueness or not being clearly spelled out. I'm also going to talk about the relationship between the first set of verses to the last. So as I read, try to keep that in mind because I believe there's great purpose in how the text is arranged. Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Now the ESV uses the word rivalry here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, or because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, Paul's expanding on what he just said in the prior verses that we heard last week from Pastor Kyle. Chapter one, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This language mimics Paul's message in the books of Colossians and Thessalonians, where he says the church, that's us, is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, just as they were doing. And how those in the church are to be an example for others to follow. These words are not to just a select few who are the strong believers or pillars of the faith that we read in the Bible, but as the introduction to his letter state is to the saints and faithful brothers and of course sisters who are in Christ. That means it's for the whole church. The questions or thoughts that can jump out from these texts are, can we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Of course we can. Can we stand firm in one spirit and strive side by side? Of course we can. Is it possible not to be frightened by our opponents? Of course it is. 
Will we suffer for our faith? Of course we will. Paul never swerves from the truth and what the life of a true Christian will look like, but he also never leaves us to ourselves or without the means for getting there or impressing upon us why great faith is needed for the Christian so we can persevere through all that's going to happen to us. Going back to the book of Colossians, Paul says in chapter one that he is warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that everyone would be mature in Christ. This is a call for the whole church. And that word mature in the Greek, that is a high bar that is set before us and is interpreted in other places as perfect. That again means that strong faith is a must and is available for every true believer. Do we believe that? If we don't, it will never happen. If we do, we must avail ourselves of the means God has given us to get there. And we also have to make sure that we don't turn what we're supposed to do into a to-do list. All right, read my Bible today, check, good there. Prayed today, check, did some good deeds today, check. God wants us to use these means, but he's not upset if we can't get our reading in because he wants more than that. He wants us to know him deeply and personally as our father. This happens as we cultivate a lifestyle of talking to him. So anytime you have one of those days where you could barely get anything done, much less spend any time in his word, rest assured that his grace and his love are always with you as you pass out on the pillow. Paul always sets himself up as the example to follow too. He says in numbers of places, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This charge of responsibility he takes is then to be imitated by others in the church so they can say the same thing. We know this as we will hear in a couple weeks in chapter three where Paul says, brothers, and of course sisters, join in imitating me. He doesn't end it there though because he adds, and keep your eyes on those who walk to the example you have in us. This is why he says in verses one to two of our text tonight, which comes on the heels of, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So how do we live this way of being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind? Well, Paul knows the Philippian church is faithful, but even a faithful and strong church needs regular exhortation and encouragement. So he continues in verse three to four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Imagine if you can all the problems in the world that would be solved if we live this way, or even tried to live this way. The world, and sadly some Christians, live in direct opposition to this way of thinking. The world lives for its own selfish ambition. Puritan John Owen says, our glory, speaking of believers, our glory only comes after we've suffered and persevered. The order is reversed for the world. For them, it is good things first, then eternal misery. And we know the Bible certainly gives us clarity on the true state of every unbeliever's selfish heart, which is summed up clearly in chapter one of the book of Romans. 
they, the unbelievers, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. That certainly doesn't sound like people who are doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or who are counting others more significant than themselves or looking out for the interest of others. This is why we need regular exhortation and encouragement. Paul is saying, don't live for and build up your own kingdom. You live for someone and something else. Selfish ambition and conceit has its focus on only one kingdom, our own. This is one reason why Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. That comes from a life of selfish ambition and conceit. Instead, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, we know our heart will also be. So where is our treasure laid up? And for clarity, that doesn't mean that we can't have some nicer things or some money in the bank. Jesus' focus is on the all-in accumulation of worldly things while pushing out the things of his kingdom instead of using all that he gives us for his glory and praise and to serve him faithfully and generously with it. It's only when we see Jesus as the greatest treasure that we could possibly have that our lives can be lived for his glory this way. We must also see that it is God who gives us everything. Not one person has anything they have because of their own strength and ingenuity. It's all from God. And the Bible is clear that everyone will give an account of what they did with what God gave them. A couple Old Testament verses that show this. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 8, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, that could be the God of self or money, and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength over all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name, for all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. And then most of us know Hebrews 4 that says we will all give an account of what we did. We should let that sink in next time we say, this is mine. Paul then says that we must count others more significantly than ourselves with humility. Why humility? Well, we must recognize and have a clear understanding of who we once were before faith in Christ. And we can revisit that list in Romans if we have to. Even the best of us, if there is such a thing, were rotten, without hope, dead in our sins, enemies of God, and with no way of reconciling ourselves to him. We didn't know it, and we would probably never admit it, but we walked joyfully with Satan as our king. 
It's also not like there was some bad seed inside of us, but you know, we dug down deep and found that one good seed. Or not like there's an expensive antique that we found hidden in the attic in the corner that's just covered with dust and some filth and we found it and polished it up. No, we lived in complete rejection to God. Only ever sinning. Covered in filth, not only outwardly, but to the depths of our very being. In Christ, though, we are a new creation. Not something that has been mended or fixed or polished up. Our heart of stone that rejected God has been removed, and we have been given a new spiritual heart so we can now worship and praise God. Puritan Stephen Charnock says it this way, health is not added to the disease, nor spiritual life added to spiritual death. No, the disease and the death are gone, replaced by health and life that we once never had. Because we were dead in sin, we needed something outside of us to change us. In regeneration and faith, which comes from a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the object of our love changes. The one whom we once turned from, we now turn to. The ways in which we walked that we once loved, we come to hate. And the ways we never would have purposely followed as the aim and direction of our life, we turn to in joy. Hopefully this shows us that we had no hope but for God. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This should cause us to bow in adoration and love to our king and to look at others saved or unsaved as people made in the image of God, which we're hearing about on Sunday. I say unsaved because we have no idea whom God is saving. And the ones we might mock the most, they may one day be born again, repent of their sins, and turn to Jesus as Lord. And as such, we will spend eternity with them in heaven. Paul finishes these two verses with, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. This should bring us great comfort as God is saying, yes, we can and we must look to our own interests. Our marriages, our finances, our holy, righteous living, they all must be in order, so to speak. We can't tell anyone to imitate us if our house or our lives are in disarray. And the same attention we give to ourselves must also be given, perhaps even to a greater degree, to others. And that doesn't mean just the people we like or the ones we want to hang around with. So what are the interests of others? And how can we look to the interests of others if we don't know anything about others, especially in the church? Going back to what Dan preached, that will probably open the door for a big mess. But as he said, that's what we are called to do. This interest of others would not only include their practical needs, but also their souls, or where they may or may not be in their walk. Are we willing to speak the truth in love, even if it's uncomfortable? Are we willing to forego a friendship, our reputation, or status for the sake of speaking the words of life to other people? Jesus also gives us some parameters we can follow in Matthew where he talks about feeding the hungry, 
welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, visiting those who are sick or in prison. Interestingly, most of those can be done only with our time and talents. Even feeding the poor can be done relatively inexpensively, especially if we consider how much we spend on frivolous purchases. And of course, I count myself in that too. So just think, for example, how much we could give to the poor if in just one month we didn't go out to dinner or we didn't buy our daily coffee or specialty drinks. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that, but just think about it. For many or most of us, we do have a good amount of disposable income that we should at least be thinking and praying about how it might be used. There are missionaries all over the world. Maybe we should consider, can I support them even a little bit? Or the Atlantic City Rescue Mission, right down the street, feeds the homeless seven days a week. Practically speaking, sometimes biblical truths can seem daunting to the believer, especially new believers. Is this really what God requires or demands of me? How can I change my aim or goal and take it off myself and instead focus heavenward? Am I really supposed to be all in for Jesus and his kingdom? And if so, how do I cultivate this type of lifestyle? Well, first I would say God is merciful and patient. He knows we are fallible. He made us so he knows our weaknesses, our struggles, and our temptations. So even if we say, that sounds good, but I don't have a dime to my name, and every minute of my day is always filled up, we can start by simply praying and just asking God how we might serve or give, and then taking one tiny step in faith, never overwhelming ourselves with somehow, somehow I got to get here. God also knows our sanctification or growing in holiness is a lifelong process that will never be fully completed in this life. That being said, I would be hugely remiss if I didn't emphasize, as I said earlier, that God does make great demands on his children. And when we read God's word, I think they're all in present tense, not someday when you're old and gray. There are numbers of verses where God says, be holy for I am holy, be found without spot and blemish. In week one, we heard where Paul said to the Philippians and to us, be pure and blameless. We are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a big one. Nowhere does the Bible tell us it's okay to be half in or it's fine if we're not on fire and only lukewarm. I would direct you to Revelation 3 where Jesus says to those that are lukewarm, he will spit them out of his mouth. So what are we to do with all these verses that clearly talk about what our lives are to look like and at times the seemingly daunting goal of reaching that bar. Well, I think we should readjust maybe our mindset. On the one hand, we can burden ourselves, right, with this high bar of conduct that God's word clearly places on us. But we can also minimize it because it doesn't seem attainable. We can all agree that God's word means what it says in growing in likeness to Jesus, but we can also attach the phrase but I can't do it perfectly. Now, of course, it is true that we can't do it perfectly in this life, but I don't think anywhere else in life we say, I can't do it perfectly. When we kiss our spouse on the way out the door to work and say, have a great day, I'm pretty sure they don't say, thanks, honey, but I can't be perfect at work. Or we let our kids out to school and have, have a great day at school, make sure you're a perfect student, right? We don't say those types of things. Again, 
This is true, we can't be perfect, so I wanna be absolutely clear on this, but the danger that I see with this phrase is that it can easily give us an out on not striving to be and pursuing the things of God diligently. It says to some, I can lower the bar and be fine where I'm at because I can't be perfect. We all know we will continue to sin, but the point is, Jesus never lowers the bar. He raises it. And again, is this raised bar the one we're striving after? Do we see that as good? Think of an Olympic high jumper. Their goal is to raise that bar as high as they can and get over it. They know that there is a height that they cannot get over, no matter what they do. But their focus is never on the I can't. They never lower the bar and say, hey, coach, you know what? This height is way easier to get over, so I'm just going to stay here. No, they raise the bar with the expectation of getting over it. Sitting back and doing nothing will not get them there. They have to work at it. They put all they are into attaining that goal. And even if there's someone else in the competition that they know they can't beat, that doesn't dissuade them because even if they jump the highest they ever did and still don't win the gold, they can rest content because they did their personal best. And their success wasn't defined by someone else's effort or attainment, but by their own individual attainment because they always believed they could. And unlike that Olympic athlete, we have the greatest coach or helper of all, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who's just waiting to help us. In the 17th century, there are two heresies called quietism and activism that show the extremes of what some believed as far as their sanctification. It's just a little aside. Quietism said, we don't have to cooperate in any way in our sanctification. We should quit striving in our holiness and just wait for God to do all the work. Basically, let go and let God. Activism said the only way we can be sanctified is by vigorously applying ourselves every day in this work with or without the work of the Holy Spirit. Both are distortions and both are wrong. Diligent use and being actively engaged in the means of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit is how we are to do it. This is one reason why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 not to quench the Spirit. Quenching Greek means to put out, like you're putting out a fire or a torch. We can quench the spirit with our unbelief by saying no. This type of faith is not possible, and so we don't even seek his help to get there. We do, though, have a responsibility on our part. That's why Paul says to Timothy, when you read 1 Timothy 6, and ergo to all of us, to flee the things that are contrary to the way we're supposed to live, and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This word pursue in the Greek is a strong word, and it means going or striving after what with all we are with great resolve in the hope and expectation of attaining it. So I suppose some questions we might ask are, what am I striving for? Am I striving for the building up of my own kingdom? That's selfish ambition and conceit. Am I content in mediocre faith, or am, am I striving for the holiness without such none will see God? Am I so caught up in the fact that I can't be perfect, that I don't strive at all? Is my mindset what I can't do in myself or what I can do by the power of the Spirit? And when we sin and we will sin, 
confessing and repenting and getting back on course. We can be who God calls us to be, but it is a goal, aim, trajectory of our lives that we must first set before us and then strive after, recognizing it is a lifelong pursuit. Because if we believe that God gives us unattainable promises in his word, our growth will, of course, be stunted with little improvement. But if we believe that God has a way of life that is attainable, even if we're not quite sure how it's possible, we will commit ourselves to his commands, not burdening ourselves with, oh, I have to be perfect, I have to be perfect, but just living out day by day, or sometimes hour by hour, this life we're called to live. Pastor John Piper says, Christ is shown to be glorious when we reflect his glory this way. For me, simply, it's helped by just removing that bar and just trying to live every day for the glory of Jesus. This is one reason why Paul encourages us in Ephesians 1. He says, the immeasurable greatness of God's power is there for those who believe. He's already talking to believers. Everything in our lives has an effect on our walk, too. What we watch, read, put emphasis on, who we hang out with, our activities, how we spend our time and money all contribute. We can all battle here in one way or another. One simple example for me is I know there are TV shows or movies that I watch that I probably shouldn't. And I can't deny that even if I can't see it, they do have a negative effect on me. Faith is a free gift of God, but growing into conformity to Jesus, I think we'd all agree, is not easy. It's tough and it's a daily fight. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. We need to turn from temptations and seek to stay out on the proper, stay on the proper path. Self-denial or putting our flesh to death is a necessity. This is one reason why Paul tells us in verse 3 to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit because he knows the dangers of the flesh. But when we see the beauty in this way of life, it will praise and honor God. As one theologian said, we should embrace this self-denial and putting our flesh to death because what lies on the other side of death is resurrection power. Death is the only way to life, and crucifixion is the only way to victory. And unless we are willing to identify with Jesus' humiliation, we will not participate in his exaltation. As such, we must have a willing submission to what the will of God is for us as revealed in Scripture. We'll hear more on this in a few weeks in chapter 3 where Paul says he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. So if anyone's life is not on that trajectory, God is merciful and patient, and you can take a small step today to change that course so we can all be moving in the right direction. And we need to do this together as a body of believers. If we think we can be a lone ranger Christian, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. All right, on to our last set of verses, verse 5 to 11. As I said in the beginning, I hope you see a relationship I mentioned between what we went over in the first verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, and we can be sure that Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. As I said, these particular verses are some of the most discussed verses in the Bible. Why? Countless discussions have been done on what this form of God is, and even more in depth, what making himself nothing or emptying himself means, and what is the name that is above every name. 
that was given to Jesus. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Now, the text doesn't say this, but we could almost add in right before verse 5, Paul saying, because of all I have just said and set before you, therefore, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Paul saying, all these things I've told you and what I'm about to tell you on how to live and how not to live, here's how you do it. Paul is talking about their and our aim, goal, direction, and trajectory of life, that we must look to the man, Jesus Christ, as our ultimate example and set forth and seek to follow his way of life, commitment, and obedience to the Father. He's not saying it's unfortunate that God has set standards that are just high, too high for you to attain. No, he's saying each of you can and must have this mind among yourselves because of the example Jesus left us. Paul's saying something even more astounding, perhaps. It's astounding, and we can easily miss it in the text. Paul's not saying, hey, you Philippians, on your own, you have to conjure up this mindset. You have to figure out how to get it, and then you have to figure out how to live it out on your own. That's not what he says. Verse 5, what does it say at the end? It is already ours in Christ Jesus. This mindset is ours already in Christ. We should let that sink in because that is very profound. This goes along with Ephesians 1 where God says he has blessed us in Christ with every, not some, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, that's us, his precious and very great promises so that through them, the promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature. Do we see that knowledge, understanding, and belief in God's promises are the key here? In Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature, not in substance, because God cannot communicate that to any person. It is in qualities, though, of God's holiness and righteousness. We go from being unholy, unable to please God, unable to produce any good fruit, to being holy, able to please God and produce works that please him. All of God's promises are there for us, waiting to be believed, embraced, and lived out. The only thing that stops them from being manifested in our lives is unbelief. Unbelief that it could actually be true, that the very thing God wants for us, we can be. This is why James says in chapter one of his letter, to ask in faith without doubting, because the one who doubts shouldn't receive or suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Now, we'd all agree it can be so hard in our man-centered way of life or woman-centered way of life to believe these truths because we know our limitations. We know our failures, and we know our everyday battles and struggles. Again, it's not easy, it's hard. Perhaps you might imagine a treasure chest filled 
with vast riches. You not only have the map to where it's located, but you have the key. But for some reason, you just won't search for it so you can open it. That can't be real. Come on. That's unbelief. And that needs to be repented of. You remember the story where Jesus went to his hometown and taught in the synagogue? His words alone brought astonishment to the people. Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works he's talking about, they said. But then they took offense with Jesus, simply because he was the carpenter's son who seemed to be just an ordinary person. In doing so, they negated the works he was willing to do for them. The story ends with, and he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. We must see that if we want Jesus to do mighty works of faith in us, then we must believe it's possible. Again, even if I'm not quite sure how, because Jesus ties faith into what he will do in us. Puritan John Brinsley says this on the power of the Spirit in the life of all believers. All true believers are partakers of this power of the Spirit. By this, they will and are able to mortify or put to death the flesh and live to God. Being made one with Jesus and because we are in union with him, all that is Christ's is ours. And whatever is in Jesus is for the benefit and advantage of those who are in him. This grace upon grace that God has for us is not like the fullness of a cup that can be lessened if whatever is inside of it spills out, but it is like a fountain that runs continually. This is the mindset we need to have. And if anyone needs any more motivation on our God who calls us to this way of life and loves his children dearly, this is what Jesus says in John 17. He says that the glory that his Father gave to him he has given to us. Now again, this is not divine glory or majesty, which can only be attributed to God, but it means high honor, excellence, and renown. This is how God sees and thinks of every true child of his. He has said, you are mine, and you are worthy and precious in my sight. Hopefully that causes us to be absolutely amazed and to bow down in great reverence and seek to live for him always. Or as we sing in church, may all our days bring glory to your name. Verse 6 to 7, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. If you read the NIV, I think it has a, a, maybe an easier to understand translation that says, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That kind of makes a little more sense. Now, as a quick aside to verse 6, if you read the King James Version, it is a little different, and I have no problem admitting that I've struggled with this verse in the King James every time I hear it read. It says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, that says it was okay being equal with God. That sounds like a contradiction to what the ESV says. Went through some commentaries. I finally found something that made sense to me. And it said that thought it not robbery to be equal with God, again, which means it's okay to be equal with God, was in direct relation to the prior verse, being in the form of God. As Jesus is God Almighty in human form, there would then be no issue with him thinking he wasn't robbing God the Father of anything by declaring his divinity here. It might even add a little more weight to the text 
because it says, even though this is who Jesus is, he then made himself nothing. As I said, countless discussions have been had over what exactly these verses mean. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but that's okay because just as there's mystery in God, we can have mystery in God's word. Many of us know Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things that are revealed belong to us and the children forever. So God tells us straight up that he reveals some things to us, and many other things are hidden. Chapter 26 of the book of Job, Job is speaking on the unsearchableness of God's majesty, and he says this in verse 14, on all we could ever know about God, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and a small, what a small whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? This is a call to be very careful for anyone who says, unless I can know, I won't believe, because there's a lot we won't know. Jesus being in the form of God in verse 6 has been debated. The Greek word for form occurs in only three places in the New Testament, in Mark 16 and twice here in our verses, and it can have two meanings. In Mark, it's applied to Jesus when he assumed, uh, the identity he assumed after his resurrection. We have the story on the way to Emmaus when he walked with the, the two men and they didn't know who he was in his form. The second meaning of the word can mean splendor, majesty, glory, or essence, John Calvin would affirm this second meaning in verse 6, and so if that's good for him, that's good for me. I'm <laughs> not going to argue with him. So even though this is who Jesus is in his humanity, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. grasped. As a man, during his earthly ministry, he was not going to take advantage of his divinity. He is our example to follow. As Romans 8 says, we are being conformed into his image. If Jesus accomplished all his work and his divine power, we could easily say, well, sure, Jesus, you can do that because you're God. But he didn't, so we can't. There are also a handful of verses that tell us how Jesus lived how he lived and did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is the way we are supposed to live and do what we're called to do. Verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing or emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, first, we must be clear that Jesus didn't lose anything in his deity by becoming human, nor was anything subtracted from his deity, and they weren't mixed either, right? We've got to be clear on that, too. God is immutable or unchangeable, so he never changes. That includes his nature. He didn't stop being God in order to become human. Instead, he took upon himself a nature, but his divine nature was never changed. As one theologian put it, the incarnation was not by subtraction, but by addition. The incarnation cannot include, include a change in the being of God. He added to himself something he did not have before, and that is a human nature. Looking again to Pastor John MacArthur, I think he summed it up greatly. He adds, this cannot mean that Christ became anything less than what he was. It does not mean he ceased to be God because then he would have ceased to be who he was. It does mean this is important. It does mean that he submitted himself by the power of the Holy Spirit to the will of the Father. The simplest way to explain this self-emptiness of Christ, MacArthur says, is that he set aside his own life as an act of total obedience to the will of the Father. He was always fully and truly God, and there was no diminishing of his glory as God and no diminishing of his glory as man. So we might say he set aside or veiled his divinity. 
not by changing his attributes or nature, but by changing his role and status. How all this perfectly fits together is a mystery we can never comprehend this side of eternity. So there really is no answer on how that's possible. Maybe not on the other side of eternity either. It does give us clarity, though, on the verses, especially this one where Jesus speaks of his return. We know this verse. But about the hour of the day, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Here Jesus is speaking in terms of his human nature. There are other verses we read where Jesus grew in wisdom. He was weary, hungry, and thirsty. These all make sense if we think of them in terms of him acting in his humanity and not his divinity. Verse 8 to 11, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God always made it clear that the penalty for sin required a sacrifice and the shedding of blood. In his perfect, obedient, and sinless life, Jesus was the spotless lamb without blemish. In his going to the cross, he became the lamb who was slain. His resurrection was the confirmation that what he did was acceptable for the pardon of sin and to secure eternal life to all who would believe. His exalted status is a result of all he accomplished. There is so much here that tells us what Jesus did, how he lived his life, what the focus or goal of his life was, and what the end result, or dare I say, what the prize was for the life he lived. All of these are examples for us also. Jesus always lived in perfect obedience to his Father's will, and so are we supposed to try to live that way. As he always was, he knew the plan that was set forth before him, which included going to the cross, which he did willingly and somehow even joyfully. The book of Hebrews tells us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's not that the cross was joyful. No, it was horrific. But he was able to see past that because he knew what it was going to accomplish for himself and for us. This should help us, as hard as it is, to look past any trials or hardships we are in and to look for what waits for us on the other side. Not, oh, thank you, God, I just really love this hardship. Right? We don't want to pretend they're not real, but thank you, God, because I know in some way it is good for me. So please help me to bear with it until it ends. For Jesus, therefore, because he endured the cross, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is another one of those mysteries. Jesus, who was the eternal Son of God, through his death, received a status and authority that had not been his before he became a man. Puritan Thomas Goodwin puts it this way. Always good when you can quote somebody smarter than you, too. Jesus has a sort of double glory which he was ordained to. The one was intrinsic, or already his, and in him, as he is the Son of God. The other is extrinsic or outside of him that was bestowed on him by his work of redemption and was purchased and bought by his blood. So what is the application for us? 
Jesus, as Jesus made himself nothing and lived in obedience to the point of death, so we must bow to him now, make ourselves nothing, and live in obedience to God's will. Or as Jesus said, picking up our cross and following him. We must lay aside selfish ambition and conceit, and instead of living for me, myself, and I, we must live for him. This way of life can only be accomplished if pride and self-rule are banished from our kingdom, and instead humility and willing submission, dependency, and obedience to the only true king takes its place. We must dethrone ourselves as king over our own kingdom and let Jesus take his rightful place there. And I would be neglectful if I only related his being obedient to the point of death symbolically to putting our flesh to death and picking up our own cross as many Christians have died in obedience to their faith. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews tells us some were whipped, stoned, imprisoned, sawn in two, and killed by the sword for their faith. Obviously, none of us wants to go through something like that, but many did, and some still do die today for their faith. Some love to coin the phrase, what would Jesus do? But we might not be so quick to say that if faced with imprisonment or death for our faith. We do need to be clear, though, on the warnings the Bible gives us. In Matthew 10, speaking on the persecution all believers will face, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. Fear not. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was acknowledged before his Father because he never denied the truth, and neither can we. Verse 9, what is the name that is above every name that has been given to Jesus? Once again, there has been much discussion on what this name is. Now, a simple reading of the text could easily lead us to believe that it is Jesus or Lord because of the immediate context, where it says that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is true, of course, that he is Lord. But Jesus, which means the Lord or God saves, and Lord are used numerous times throughout the New Testament. Jesus was also not an uncommon name back then. Others would add in the possibility of this name being the Son of Man or the Son of God. In Daniel 7, we read this as far as the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds pretty convincing. And then again in Revelation 1, I think we heard it Sunday, John uses the phrase son of man when he refers to Jesus when he sees him in his vision. How about son of God? Even though Jesus was called the son of God numerous times in the New Testament, there's another interesting thread to see also. In chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, the writer says this about Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? This tells us that Jesus inherited or was given a name which seems to be in line with our text here in Philippians. Was that name son, as the Hebrews verse seems to indicate? Was there something special about that there? There's another potential confirmation in Romans 1 where Paul tells us that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power, not by his life, but by his resurrection. To add a little bit more, and I want to be careful here because it's not entirely clear, but in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, speaking from his throne in heaven, God says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Interestingly, this word heritage in the Greek is the same word as inheritance that is applied to Jesus in the Hebrews verse. Now, again, in the Revelation, the immediate context is for us as believers that we will have our heritage or inheritance, and we will be sons of God. But it also clearly describes the life of Jesus who conquered to the end and was given or inherited a name above all other names and is the true son of God. Where we receive the title of son of God by adoption, Jesus has the name son of God by authority. Again, we know that Jesus was called the son of God in many New Testament verses, and so I guess we just have to ask as far as this, is the son of God in the Hebrews and the Romans verse and maybe Philippians something different than what is used throughout the New Testament? Others think the name above all other names means Jehovah. The name Jehovah came when the vowels of the word Adonai were put together with the consonants of Yahweh. The ESV doesn't use the word Jehovah anywhere, but the King James Version does. Lastly, some would say it refers to God's self-existent name of Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God that comes from the Hebrew word for I am, which was too sacred to even be spoken by the Jewish people. As an aside, in the ESV and most English Bible translations, they use the word Lord. If you see that in your Bible, Lord in small capital letters, that refers to Yahweh. So anytime you're reading it, it says Lord. You wonder why it's small capital letters. Uh, it means Yahweh. Supporting the possibility that could be Yahweh, the Old Testament has the same language of bowing to the Lord, which is not specific in the New Testament alone. In Isaiah 45, we read this, and I'm paraphrasing, I am the Lord, small caps, means Yahweh. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, again, all caps, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. That verse clearly mimics the Philippians verse. If that name is Yahweh, Paul is tying Jesus to that name. This wouldn't have meant much to Gentiles, but to the Jewish audience then and now, that would and should have huge ramifications. Paul would be saying the great I am is Jesus. Jesus is the creator of all things, the only savior, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai through the burning bush and the only redeemer. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he has been crowned Lord, small caps, of all. As Jesus is our example, and all that is his is ours, there is something else that is astonishing to this name in Revelation 3 as it relates to us. Jesus says to the one who conquers, that would be for us when we reach our final destination, 
To the one who conquers, I will write on him my own new name. Now, unless Jesus has many new names, it seems to say that whatever name he inherited, somehow this is going to be written on us. Now, this echoes Isaiah 44, where God's true children will write on, or with their hand, the Bible says, I am the Lord's. Again, small caps means Yahweh. The word name in Revelation means the manifestation of someone's character and is inseparable from the person to whom it belongs. That's how close we are with Jesus. Although commentators don't all agree on what this name above all names is, what they would be in agreement with is what it means. It is the highest rank of honor and majesty. Because Jesus was triumphant at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This again is why we must seek to live for him because we were redeemed for the glory of God and not for the glory of ourselves. The day is coming when everyone will bow their knee to Jesus, but it is a twofold promise. For those who have been born again by the Spirit, who have repented and turned from their sins, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and sought to live with all they have for his glory and praise, they will bow in exaltation and praise to their king and receive their crown of glory. Just as a conquering general would receive his when he returned from winning that decisive battle for his king and came home to be crowned with glory and honor. And if that language of receiving a crown sounds uncomfortable, it perfectly echoes what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, where he says that there was a crown of righteousness waiting to be awarded to him and to all true believers. There is also a second group that will bow, though. This is the second part of that twofold promise. For those who have rejected Jesus, they will bow to him in judgment. Just as an enemy king in a battle would be dragged before the victorious king and made to bow before him before his life was taken. This latter group will be rightly cast into eternal damnation as the rightful punishment for their sins and rejection of the only true King and Lord. This is why the Bible emphasizes that we must be clear on what true saving faith is and why we are called to test and examine our faith. Because once Jesus returns, it will be too late. Doesn't it make sense then that we should bow our knee to him now? This treasure chest of faith, strong, bold, zealous life, and this life of holy and righteous living is just waiting to be found and opened up and lived out. And all true born-again believers have the map and the proverbial key. First, we have to believe it's possible. Secondly, in faith, we have to reach out and open it up. Because no treasure chest filled with jewels has ever just washed up on shore by itself, but had to be searched for and uncovered, it is not a quick or easy journey. It's lifelong. But it is one that will provide riches beyond what we could ever imagine. And it is a wonderful journey. 
And when we finish the race and stand before Jesus, confessing not only with our lips, but with the testimony of the way we lived our lives, we will show that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.